Welcome to episode eight of Turning the Goldfields Green. Today we're speaking with Dr. Susie Burke, psychologist, and Carolee Jensen from Community House. I first saw Susie at the Council's Climate Emergency Declaration Forum, where they were consulting with the community about whether or not the Council should declare a climate emergency. And I was so impressed with your perspective and passion about the topic that I knew I had to speak with you on the show. And as it happens, you're about to run three workshops at Castlemaine Community House, and they're all on aspects of climate change and our human responses to climate change. And so we'll unpack each topic a bit later in the show, but in brief, they are coping with climate change, deep adaptation, and parents talking with children about climate change. And they're cheap as chips. They're only $15 each. And that actually, ironically, has become the problem for some in our community, it seems. But before we meet Susie and Carolee, I'd like to acknowledge that we are recording this episode on Jara Country, which is the home of the Jaja Wurrung people. And I'd like to recognise their leaders past, present and emerging. And Susie, I believe you have an additional element to an acknowledgement of country. Yes, Ali, we do. When I was working at the Australian Psychological Society, we tried to establish a protocol to deliver at the beginning of meetings or conferences that we're at, where after acknowledging that we were meeting on Indigenous land, that we would then follow up and acknowledge that we were living in a time of climate threat and that all of the problems that we are currently working on or the reason for why we might have been having the meeting or the conference or whatever it was that was the reason for us gathering together is going to uh, increase in difficulty and complexity if we don't address climate change as an urgent issue in our society. And so we were trying to establish this as a meaningful protocol and we didn't want to in any way take away from the habits that we're developing now to acknowledge a meeting on Indigenous land. But we like the idea of following it with this acknowledgement of climate threat and then linking it to an acknowledgement of how well Indigenous people have cared for the land and lived here sustainably for tens of thousands of years and how you know, we know how to address climate change we know all of the solutions to climate change. It's a, it's a matter of learning from people that have come before who've done it really well, but also learning from what the scientists are telling us we need to do now and getting on with it. I think we can all agree to that. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. Okay, so the controversy that surrounded this was that someone somewhere found out that these classes that Susie is running or the workshops through Community House have been subsidised by council so that they can be cheaper for people and more people can access them. So Carolee, you're one of the managers at Community House. Can you tell us a little bit how it all unfolded and what happened? Well, my understanding is last week, Jody Newcomb, the climate change coordinator, sent out an e-newsletter kind of announcing these workshops, these sessions. And from that, someone picked it up, a resident of Malden, and she was not keen on the idea and rang rang into 3AW and had a chat with them about it. The interesting thing that I find in it is not an objection to a climate change session, 
not an objection to these things happening, but the objection was, as a ratepayer, their rates being used to pay for such a thing. And I think that that was really interesting because the conversation, the interview kind of went off on a tangent of not happy with our councils rather than sitting in the space of why are we talking about climate change? And they were talking about how it's an inappropriate use of of, uh, council funds. What was really great about it was that that interview was then followed up by a chat with Michael Carr Gregg and he was terrific. He actually endorsed these workshops. So tell me who he is. Michael Carr Gregg is a very well-known clinical psychologist. So like me, he's a member of the Australian Psychological Society. He's a colleague who um, is senior to me. I, I don't personally know him, but you know we've certainly worked together on the periphery of projects and he's been on the board of the Australian Psychological Society. So he's an extremely well-regarded psychologist. I'm sure he's been up in Castle, Maine, you know, presenting on you know adolescent mental health and all sorts of things, but he, he's a media person so he talks a lot on the media about mental health and so I saw it had reached Channel 7 News how did it get that far and why was people still talking about it really yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) um yeah I'm not sure maybe it was a slow news day I'm not sure what I found with Channel 7 with what they ran with it only addressed what the resident from Molden rang up to talk about. It didn't address what Dr Michael Carr said. Mm. And Michael Carr had some terrific points to make around a recent report put out by Reach Out uh, last year stating that 80% of young people are concerned and anxious about climate change, that there is, there is a real mental health issue within that. And surely when an opportunity arises for council to address Something like this, which you know, is mental, mental health, is um, one of the six Australian national health care priorities. Yeah. So why would we, for $1,500, offering three sessions to a potential of um, initially 60 people, that is an incredible value for money. And I think it's a really positive move by council. So it's a real shame that Channel 7 chose to go with a council needs to focus on potholes conversation. Look, I think there's another issue as well. Our council has declared a climate emergency, right? So what does that mean? That means our Mm. council now has to behave as though we are in a climate emergency, which of course we are, and it's undeniable from the, you know, the science on climate change that this is of emergency proportions. And what that means is council has to do things differently. And if what that means is council, you know, has to find a range of different ways of being able to treat climate change seriously, actually hearing from community members about how they're feeling and thinking about climate change is a huge part of that. And Ali, you mentioned before my presentation to the council when we had this excellent one-day forum where all members of the community were able to come and talk to the council about why, what they think about the council declaring a climate emergency before the council actually voted and passed the motion. And in my presentation, I, as a psychologist, was talking about the psychological implications of climate change. And I look both at, in my research, and I've written you know quite a few papers on this with colleagues, I look at the mental health and psychological implications of climate change, but I'm not just looking at how climate change impacts on people 
people's mental health, which is what Michael Cargreg was referring to in terms of how it impacts on young people. And we know that is a problem. But actually, how people are psychologically coming to terms with climate change has an enormous bearing on what they actually do about it. And so it's not just an issue about how people are feeling about it and how it's impacting their mental health, but how we are thinking and interpreting and understanding and making sense of climate change, which are all things that, the psychological things, it's about how we think and how we process and how we feel about things, influences whether we switch off and decide it's too scary, we don't want to think about it anymore, therefore we'll just shop more and consume more and focus on other Go on our things. European holiday yeah, and our cruise. Our, yes, exactly, to make ourselves not feel, feel... I don't think people will be going on cruises so quickly right at the moment. But, <laughs> no. You know, yeah, things like that. Consume more resources. Or do they feel supported in how they're feeling about it as an existential threat and an enormous crisis and actually use that by acknowledging that feeling to be galvanised into action to do something about it. So it's actually so much more than just a mental health issue. It's about how do we support our community to face the frightening reality of climate change so that we can get behind Council's climate emergency plan, whatever shape that's going to take, and get behind Australia's efforts Mm. and worldwide efforts to actually do something about climate change now before it's too late before we're in you know a catastrophic situation and people would say we're probably in a catastrophic situation anyway already well it's interesting because i was watching a q a episode about the bushfires and they had this whole conversation and they had a minister there who was sort of like a staunch climate not going to admit it kind of guy and one of the everyday normal people there who was on the ground fighting the bushfires and was relating as a member of a community to the audience also said something along the lines of look, it doesn't actually matter whether it's climate change or not. It matters how we adapt to what's happening. And I thought fundamentally, and no one picked it up, they they just sort of let it go. But I thought actually it really, really matters whether people understand the bushfires and the emergency as part of climate change or not. And how we react and adapt to, because the government seems to be okay to say, hey, let's adapt but they're not going to say, let's adapt to climate change because climate change is happening. Mm. (laughs) They're just saying, let's adapt. (laughs) Yes, and one of the big problems with just thinking about the importance of adapting to climate change and understanding it as being more frequent extreme weather events is it completely underestimates the threat that climate change poses because climate change both increases the frequency and intensity of disasters, which is disastrous, and we've seen what that looks like this summer. It's going to be worse in the future because that's exactly what we know is going to happen but climate change actually changes and affects absolutely everything and the science is really clear on this we're heading into a warming pattern that is most likely going to tip off a whole lot of feedback loops which are going to be unimaginably worse than any of the bad disasters we've had so far and so to just treat it as something that we can adapt to completely underestimates the fact that this is a global emergency. This is an existential threat. It threatens millions of people across the planet. But it it threatens our ecosystems. So even if our global natural disasters don't kill us, if all of the insects or all of the plants or entire ecosystems collapse, we won't have food left. Yeah. You know, there won't be 
anything for us. Yes, that's right. I went and listened to this woman um, from America who's called Margaret Klein Solomon the other day. She's a clinical psychologist from New York and she started the Climate Emergency Mobilisation, which is a movement in America. She started about 10 years ago. And she was talking about how drought is the most urgent civilization destroying mechanism of all the threats that we can face and you know we've seen dreadful droughts in Australia but the droughts here in Australia lead to you know calamitous effects in rural communities and calamitous effects for people interpersonally but in other parts of the world it leads to mass migration lots of conflict within countries and then people fleeing the countries and we saw this in in Syria and so when you were talking about the effects on entire ecosystems collapsing um, again that's one of the things like drought that utterly impacts on our food growing capacity which leads to you know these mass migrations and that might seem like it's not an Australian problem but not yet it's but not yet that's right drought impacts us our Look communities. small towns small it, towns that are flailing yeah mm. that's right in, the, in terms of the devastation we don't doesn't tend to lead to civil war yet no. in Australia but it does in other parts of the world and we care about that because it's mm. our actions it is a global problem that we're all contributing to and we have got one of the highest individual carbon footprints across the world therefore we're utterly responsible for doing something about that now that we've all agreed that it really is a climate emergency and that it's very important that we put some money in. I think it's just really interesting, the reporting on it. And I think I mentioned this to you, Carolee, in some of our exchanges as we watched this develop. It seems like the people who want to deny climate are just getting more and more desperate for content. And they're misrepresenting really because $1,500 mm. from a council fund that is already directed towards sustainability, it was never going to be towards potholes. No, it's, no. It seems like it's a storm in a teacup. It's not actually a problem. It's. It didn't appear to be a problem about addressing climate change. It was a problem about council and what what are they doing with their money and no one asked us. It, it seems to be more of an issue with council, which I find reassuring because, I don't know, a few months ago, before the bushfires, people may have made louder noise about why are we doing these workshops, these sessions for climate change, mm. less focus on, oh, council, come on, use our money this way. Yeah. So to me, the, the focus has shifted a little bit, whether there's a there's a different kind of acceptance that having yeah disaster on our doorstep has brought to people and and the connections between the bushfires and climate change are somewhat undeniable i mean i say somewhat because i'm sure there are some people who still can hold on to that but it seems to be the it's changing so i i find it reassuring that this argument came up that it's it brought up a discussion even on our facebook page people have asked questions but why why is this happening and it's it's been terrific to be able to respond and say well if you look at this and you look at that and you put these together you can you can see rationally this is why we're doing what we're doing so i th i think it's a terrific opportunity for a conversation i did the thing you're never supposed to do and I looked at the comments under one of the Facebook posts. It was, I think it was the Maryborough Courier or Times, one of the Maryborough newspapers had linked to the Channel 7 report and had asked their audience what they think. And there was almost universal agreement in the comments underneath. And this is just a town that's 40 minute drive away from us. It's one of our relatively close neighbours. 
And so many of the comments were vitriolic and Mm. a lot of them referred to, oh, of course that's happening in Castlemaine. Of course that would happen over there. And there were some very strong deniers and scoffers and who are these idiots who believe in climate change kind of comments. And it just reminded me that they're right in a way that we do kind of live in a bubble and often the people I talk to are horrified and surprised that yet again the Liberal government gets in with their climate denialism and their, you know, Adani coal mine approvals and all of this sort of stuff. But these people who are our neighbours are actually the people voting for that government and who agree with them. Can I just make a comment about that? Because I've got a slightly different perspective. So one thing that I was thinking about when, Carolee, you were talking about what our council is doing, I was thinking that this is something that many councils in Victoria are doing. So I've actually been, um, in the last few months, invited by a lot of councils in Melbourne to come and participate in climate change forums or climate emergency forums. So similar to what our council did. Really similar. So these councils are all actively putting on these things because they know that their community is asking for it, mm. uh, that their community is desperate for this. And the other thing that they know is that, and some and some of these councils have, have declared a climate emergency and some have not yet and some have not and maybe they will or maybe they're not being urged to. So it's a variety of councils. But, you know, Hume, Bayside, City of Yarra, Port Phillip, so many councils have been putting on these events. And the reason why they're doing it is because they're responding to their community's requests and needs, just like our council is doing that so it's not like the council just dreamt up no, something to and put some effort it into it goes beyond councils just looking at in the last few months so the community house our peak body is neighborhood house victoria and at their agm last year they had a presentation on the sustainable development goals which is significant it's it's fantastic and this will then be shared amongst over 300 community houses around victoria which will then be shared amongst their community. So that's that's a huge step for Victoria. And, the, um, and, and that's just within Victoria. And then today I saw an email from another one of our funding bodies, Adult Community and Further Education, who is providing some training for all our lo- learn locals in the area to come along and participate in learning about sustainability and sustainability literacy. So it's happening. It's shifting. It's out there. And I'm sorry, folks who (laughs) don't love this idea but it's happening and there's always going to be pushback there's always going to be that people are always going to try and it's it's so it's such a huge mental shift change for a lot of people and something Mm. Susie and I have talked about before is gently gently with that Mm. and that these sessions are not just for diehard climate change activist supporters these sessions are for people who are going hmm hold up eh, I want to know a little bit more yeah I'm not I'm not a hundred percent where I was last week and I'm starting to see something I reckon this is terrific because I love that there's a conversation I love that the conversation is happening and it's opening it up to people and it's providing an opportunity for people to really critically analyse what is out there instead Mm. of just a 
I'm in my corner, you're in your corner and we're going to throw rocks at each other. Yeah. Um, I yes. think it's great. Can I also make another comment too about what you were talking about, about the being the view of, you know, communities near to Castlemaine and, and some of the comments being... Well, well individuals. Course, yeah, in of course Castlemaine would think that. I just want to point out that the pushback against a climate workshop is an absolute minority view and I think that by Channel 7 coming and only taking the perspective of the mm, people who were very dissenting is such bad reporting <laughs> it because terrible. it completely distorts the reality. We know that the majority of Australians care deeply about climate change, understand that it's caused by human behaviour and recognise that if we don't do something about it, it's going to be a disaster. That's what the research shows. We know that that's what people think. We also know that the number of people who actually deny that anthropogenic climate change is a problem is between five to seven percent of the population like it's nobody it's a really small minority but they're loud and they're noisy and I, I want to talk about why that's the case because I think it's really important and it comes to the heart of actually why we're running these workshops anyway which is about breaking the conspiracy of science around climate change so what we know from the research is that most people don't talk about climate change and they're concerned about climate change with other people and there are very large numbers of people who never have a conversation about it with anybody um, and certainly not daily and certainly not even weekly or monthly and that's enormously problematic because what that means is that when people are not talking about it they're, they're under the illusion that other people don't think it's a problem and so if you ask people how much do you think other people care about uh, climate change or how many other people do you think care about climate change the percentages that they give are really really small but we actually know that the people in the community that care about climate change and are worried about and want to do something about it are really really big and so there's this knowledge gap and this is what... Um, perception gap. Yeah, that's right. And this is enormously problematic. And so one of the reasons why I think, Kiralee, you're saying it's so great that we're talking about it is because we actually have to be talking about the threat of climate change every day with people and with everybody because when you talk about something that you're concerned about you normalize that as being an okay thing to talk about and other people who might not have been talking about it because they're under the misperception that other people are not worried about it because we're not talking about it feel encouraged to then acknowledge their fears about it accept that it is a threat that's happening right now and then do something about it so channel seven Terrible reporting. They really needed to go and talk to people who had asked for council to take climate well, change seriously. Chances are they did. They just ended up on the editing floor. Yeah, possibly. well, really, really bad editing then. Like, it's a terrible story. I think the real story is that councils all over Victoria are declaring climate emergencies and are running workshops mm. for the community because the community is saying, I'm terrified about climate change. Yeah. My children are terrified about climate change. How do I talk to my children about it? How do I deal with my own fears? And what are we doing about it? And what mm. can I do about and it? The, and what can you do about it? The, the backlash is possibly coming from the same people who would be saying, oh, stop bringing children into it. You're scaring them. They're also the same people, I think, that when emergencies happen and droughts and bushfires love to blame the government and will blame the government for not having done enough. And I do think there's a there's a vicious sort of circle involved with our government and the people of Australia as well, where as long as the government's not taking it seriously, the people won't take it seriously. But while the people aren't taking it seriously, the government won't either. And so this is why it's important to get every local council gradually, one by one, mm. declaring an emergency, because the local councils are the ones who are closest to the ground. And then once enough of them get enough momentum, the state governments and the federal government eventually is going to have to crack. Well, that we even have a climate change coordinator, it's fantastic. 
I think it's completely normal. Like, I mean, it might not be normal in that it's happening in all the councils, but it's like yeah. a duh, of course we have it to have a climate change coordinator. Yeah. Gosh, what's the biggest threat that's facing the world at the moment? Well, some people might say it's the coronavirus right at the moment, but <laughs> it's actually climate change. Yeah. Uh, climate yeah. change is an existential threat to the civilization of the world. On that we note. should have a climate change coordinator then. Yeah. We should have 10. We should. <laughs> And I've got a song for you guys, which is on the theme of all the haters out there who are going to hate, hate, hate. Um, we'll listen to this and we'll be back in just a minute. I'm talking to Dr. Susie Burke and Carolee Jennings about the courses coming up soon at Community House about coping with climate change. That was Taylor Swift with Shake It Off. And I think there's a good message in there for everyone who's ever dealt with anything to do with social media is that there's going to be trolls and haters and we see it in Castlemaine a lot in our community conversations around anything at all, really. We've seen it so many times. Dr Susie Burke, you're a psychologist. Do you have particular input on this age of social media and how people manage to still exist online and do meaningful work while there's going to be so many trolls out there? Oh, I have lots of opinions about that, Ali. (laughs) Thank you for that question. Uh, When I came in today for the interview, Ali, you said to me, have you been following all the controversy? And I I said, oh, God, no, I don't listen to that or, you know, follow any of that. I find it just unsettling and if it's something important, somebody (laughs) will tell me if I have to know. And I was thinking about... Um, you know, the importance of actually being able to switch off and not feel as if you have to read all of the comments at the end of posts and, and things like that. I've always said that, you know, tackling the existential threat of climate change is hard enough without having to subject yourself to, you know, vitriol and, you know, degrading comments and, you know, people who are threatening and huffing and puffing. I understand that that's an one of the ways in which people respond when they're deeply anxious or frightened about something and climate change is really frightening and one of the ways in which we try to push it away and not have to pay attention to it is to you know hit out at somebody else or blame somebody else or run it down or say it's stupid or say oh you're all just getting overexcited about nothing it's a technique it's a it's It's a a schoolyard technique it's a schoolyard yeah that's right it's not a and this comes back to what i was saying at the very beginning it's really important to understand how people are psychologically coping with the threat of climate change because that is one of the ways in which people will will cope with it and you know i'm personally will protect myself by not paying too much attention to that and i was also thinking about the school strikers and how you know thoughts about that as well because as we know Greta has received a lot of really nasty press and media and I'm just hoping and trusting that her father who's very you know looks after her very closely and her adult friends have been able to shield her and protect her and she's actually got some quite good comebacks but I hope that she's protected from actually reading some of the nasty Mm. stuff that gets said about her because again that's a that's a pushback for people who are really frightened about what she's talking about because basically what she's saying is we have to change the entire economic system on which our lovely satisfied lives are you know have been having been built on and uh, that's really threatening for people so when people get threatened they you know 
know, kick back and they try to tear down the, the spokesperson. Shoot the messenger. Yeah, shoot the messenger, that's right. But when the kids here in Castlemaine, the three little kids, um, Malou, Harriet and Callum, started the school strikes here, I think it's really interesting that none of them had phones and none of them were on social media. So they were just oblivious to what people might have been saying about them, which I... I thought it was great and they just did their thing and they just went out and they knew that if you've got a problem you go and sit outside Bridget McKenzie's office and you know you demand to speak to her and tell her what you think and she probably won't let you in and and <laughs> you know then you move on to the next politician's office and you have a go there but they didn't have to be subjected to the nuts and I think that's a really important thing that parents do we have to protect and teach our children how to you know protect themselves from you know, nastiness, it's one. Of, it's a useful coping strategy. Well, that leads into one of your workshop topics, which is the third one, actually, which is happening on the 30th of March at Casamane Community House. And it's about, it's the topic is, how do parents talk to children about climate change? One of your children is a climate activist and you yourself describe yourself as a climate activist. So you're definitely knowledgeable on a personal level but as a psychologist you're you're trying to help people understand ways that they can bring up the conversation without terrifying their children into nightmares and deep anxiety that's right actually it came about from a different in in a slightly different direction when I was working at the Australian Psychological Society I've been working on climate change and disasters for the last sort of 10 to 12 years and a colleague of mine Anne Sanson who's a developmental psychologist uh, she's a professor in Melbourne she and I started to do some write some articles on the psychological effects of climate change on children and one of the things that we were very aware of was that parents weren't talking to their children about climate change but that children knew about climate change and they're in a problem because children hear about climate change they overhear adults talking about it they hear other kids talking about it at school they're subjected to it on the news and if parents are thinking and oh, no, I don't want to talk to my children about it that's really unfortunate because what happens when children pick up things without actually having had a you know a caring conversation with a parent about it they often misunderstand it or they just sit with a whole lot of worries or um, you know worries and anxieties about it so we wrote our original um, tip sheets and resources for parents coming from that perspective of assume even if you haven't talked about it with them yourself that they've heard about it and they know about it and therefore it sounds like you're talking about sex I know I was thinking the same <laughs> yeah. thing well maybe you have to start having those conversations yeah. at the same time the same yeah. age absolutely it's exactly the same thing yeah. kids talk and kids hear other people talk about it and it's out there in the media and kids a lot of kids are on gadgets they know about it so you need to talk about it with them and you need to hear what they have learnt about it what sense they're making of it how they're feeling about it and clarify any misperceptions, help to validate how they're feeling about it, and then help them cope with the various ways in which they feel about it or think about it. And if that means help them in ways that they might be wanting to take action, do that. It's not up to children to have to take the action, but a lot of the children are using that as a way of coping with their own distress and anxiety about climate change or teach them ways of being able to feel good about the world and to still feel in love with the world and to feel that the world is a safe place, mm. even though we are facing these large threats. Your practice as a psychologist is focused largely around climate change and the effects of that on people. Does it come up a lot, obviously, if you've built a practice around it with that as a theme? <laughs> it comes up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's really hidden. It's a hidden, deeply held thing across many many people yeah, in yeah. our society it started coming up a lot after the last federal election 
yeah. of course, because people who are aware of climate change as a major threat, I think felt that the devastation of not having a change of government meant that action on climate change was going to slow in Australia and that's got worldwide consequences and it just does. And yeah. so that raised a whole lot of people's dread and anxiety and, of course, the summer of mm. unstable extreme weather and the consequential fires has been another big source of anxiety for people. And yeah. parents are really distressed about that as well because we yeah. care deeply about the world that our children are growing into. Absolutely. And so your first workshop on the 11th of March is about coping with climate change, anxiety and depression and the suite of emotions that may come with fully recognising, I guess, or gradually coming to recognise what this climate emergency means personally and for society and for nature itself. Tell me about what that workshop will be like. Well, there's a step before feeling what you feel about climate change, which is opening yourself up to the reality of the threat of climate change and taking that on board. And that's then going to lead to a whole lot of deeply felt responses to that. And there's, I suppose, two reasons why I think it's really important for people to come together in groups to explore those feelings. And one is because they're painful really painful feelings and when we come together and talk with others about those feelings it both both validates them and it normalizes them but the other thing is it's actually essential for us to really deeply feel the threat of climate change to inspire us or to move us into actually doing something about it and we really need to move into doing something about it because we're not going to solve the problem if we can't face it and if we face it, we have to feel it. And it's only then that we're actually sufficiently motivated to do something about it. And there's a lot of chat in, in you know, around and also within psychology about the use of fear to galvanise action. And some people think that, you know, if you make people too afraid of something, it'll backfire and they'll then go to Shut try down. to soothe themselves. Yes, self-soothing mm. and consume more and eat more and watch more telly and go on these services holidays and things like that. And, you know, there certainly is that risk. But actually, fear is the most motivating force that humans have. We are very survival is dependent on the fact that we've got this terrific fear mechanism and when we feel frightened we fight or we you know we 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 get galvanized into action and so actually we need to acknowledge that it's really frightening in order to activate that threat response which is to do something about the thing that threatens us so the workshop is really about these two things it's about sharing with other people how it really feels because that's a great way of being able to cope with your feelings but it's also to recognize that it's not until you've really felt it that you're utterly ready to do something about it. One thing that I saw in the comments that I shouldn't have read at the bottom of that Facebook post um, when you got the negative press was one person in particular said they basically belittled the idea that people would even have climate anxiety mm. or, or climate depression. Like toughen up. This person said, I know someone with a real mental illness and they've been waiting for six months to get proper psychiatric care. And they basically said, this isn't real and you shouldn't be funding this. I think it's great that as a society we're recognising mental health more and more. Like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you know, mental health was just shut away, locked in a closet, locked in an asylum. But these days we're talking about it more and more. Our understanding of the whole human being is is ever emerging and 
I think that response to categorise one thing as real mental health and another thing as not valid was really damaging to anyone following that conversation who actually might be feeling profound anxiety and fear and they're going, oh, I shouldn't be feeling scared of this, it's not real, I, I don't know. Shouldn't be feeling frightened about runaway and climate change and the catastrophe that's unfolding in front of our eyes that we just saw a little glimpse of this summer but we know it's only going to get worse. I think that's something to be really scared about. Of course, we don't want to develop anxiety disorders and, you know, depressions, although George Monbiot, who's a climate writer in the UK, he says he doesn't actually mind if people get... I'm paraphrasing terribly and he might be horrified to hear me say that, but he goes, if you get utterly depressed about climate change and that means that you go to bed and you pull the covers over your head and you stop burning fossil fuels and putting them into the atmosphere, well, that's, that's perhaps a good thing, but <laughs> apart from that, it's kind of a miserable place to be. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we need to talk about it. We need to feel it and then we need to move into doing something about it Mm. and we've had people come into the community house in the last few months but particularly in the last couple of months coming in um, we had an older lady coming in saying I'm feeling anxious I'm feeling you know in terms of the bushfires and and uh, climate change but more with she was speaking about the bushfires that what can I do? What can you offer me here? What can you do for me? And and sitting down and having a long conversation with her about how she wanted to address it and, and creating her own group of supports. And then others who just even in personally as friends and work colleagues talking about their recent experiences with the bushfires and anxiety and, and one talking about you know, how these bushfires have brought her into a real state of climate change anxiety so they're there and they're in our community and they're consciously looking for support they're asking and and needing so to me these sessions couldn't have been more timely mm. um, it's like it's a really responsible thing to be offering yeah there, isn't it? yeah and yeah. for what you were saying about you know how irresponsible it is to put a comment like that on facebook and for people who are experiencing that anxiety, that climate change anxiety, the bushfire anxiety, to read that and just go, oh, God, well, I'm obviously broken and wrong, aren't I? Yeah. Um, just it's so unfair. It. When we talk about the psychological impacts of climate change on people, we look at it as covering the whole spectrum from, you know, the mental health impacts right down to what we call psychosocial well-being. So that's things like, you know, stress and worry and, you know, relationship problems and, you know, fractured communities and losing a sense of you know belonging and a sense of identity if you know if you were living in a community that was devastated by a bushfire for example and so uh you know it's not everybody who feels anxious about climate change who you would say that's at the level of it being a diagnosable mental health problem but that's not to say that it's not extremely important for that to be acknowledged and explored and you know for people to feel equipped to be able to manage those feelings so that they can stay fully engaged in their life but also in creating a future that's sustainable for all ecosystems and all of us on the planet. I think the other thing about mental health especially anxiety and depression is they're they're stealth conditions. You don't realise you've (laughs) Mm. got them until you realise you're not going out because you're anxious or you you know it can take people a long time to realise that they're even suffering from anxiety or depression or to admit it to themselves. And sometimes people have been suffering it for so long that they feel so identified with that as a personality. Oh, I'm just shy. It's actually because you're feeling social anxiety and if you can work with that, you might be able 
different sort of person, you know. Anxiety and depression are, are quite stealthy. So to shame people or make them feel bad for tr- looking at it or trying to think about it or talk about it is really damaging. Mm. And, and, and anyway, I think it's utterly normal, I mean, to be feeling anxious, worried, scared, gutted, devastated, grief-struck, guilty, ashamed, angry, all of those sorts of things in response to climate change. I went to a uh, forum over in Bendigo a few months ago and it was people putting forward different ideas about how they're creating a more sustainable lifestyle for themselves. And I, you know, there was lots of different practical ideas that were terrific, but for me the really important takeaway was so many of them spoke about you, some days you're not going to get it right. Some days you're going to need to drive the car into town twice. Some days you're going to need to take that thing in plastic. Don't beat yourself up. There's, there's so much you can do and as long as you are doing and you're conscious of your doing, there's no point to getting yourself into a state of, oh, my God, I'm just not going to get this right so I'm just not going to try or mm-hmm. just staying in bed. I think it's also important for people to be supporting each other in, yeah, it can be a very anxious thing, such as as a parent trying to shop correctly in a a way that allows for your own finances, the nutrition, and in a sustainable way. And that can be a full-time job to be working that out. I mean, it's not so hard in Castlemaine. We've got places we can go to, to take our own bags, all of that. But in other places outside of our little bubble... It can be a real challenge. So I think to be supporting people around, yeah, it can be anxious. In in you know, Across that spectrum is really important. One of the things that I talk about a lot, I often run these um, uh, workshops for organisations and groups on the psychology of climate change, sort of looking at what are the ways in which we can respond in an effective and empowering way to climate change. And we often talk about uh, the importance of also encouraging people to move away from lifestyle changes, which are the sort of things you're describing, which we also might call individual behaviour change. And um, and whilst they are important because they're a way of responding personally to the threat of climate change, in terms of their carbon reduction potential, they're quite small and they can take in an awful lot of energy and mm. they can lead to a whole lot of guilt and worry mm-hmm. and anxiety. Yeah. And we try to really invite people to say, to see that group actions and political actions and walking into your council and saying, we need you to declare a climate emergency and ringing your politicians and joining, you know, the bigger movement of people putting pressure on, uh, you know, big system change are also incredibly powerful and vital activities for mm. people to do. And so we often yeah, invite people to not sweat the household stuff too much, but to if they've only got limited energy, to put that limited energy into some of the bigger things. Like you'd be better off ringing your politician, your local politician, and saying, you know, when are you going to declare a climate emergency? This is a critical issue. I, I, you know, farmers are struggling because we've got, you know, these prolonged droughts in our region, and I think you absolutely need to make this a priority or I'm going to vote for the other fella, um, rather than worrying about your... Personal consumption. Definitely that, but not everyone's in a position to be able to for for various reasons. And I think it, it is important to also as a 
as a consumer to be making those conscious choices, which then gets to the dollar, gets to the business, gets to the government. So I think both of them mm. are, are valid and not, not everyone's going to be a protester a letter writer. Mm. Um, I think there's there's people who will do it in their own way. And at, at the same time, you know, it, it's not enough to be patting yourself on the back because you are recycling uh, because mm. obviously that's absolutely pointless at the yeah. moment. So <laughs> it's do what you can, be okay with that and do as much as you can. Another way um, that I've heard people can allay their own sense of personal guilt because a lot of the messaging has been we need to do more you need to renounce plastic as individual efforts as you're saying which collectively do add up to a lot but we don't want to burn out or make our lives so constricted that we can no longer act in the world Mm. Um, so it is important to keep moving and keep functioning and keep connected so you don't isolate yourself because you're no longer driving your car and no longer connected to community You, you stay connected you keep doing the stuff you can do but one thing someone pointed out to help manage that sort of sense of personal guilt that some people really take on is to adopt uh, this idea about next. So my next car will be more efficient or electric if possible. And my next hot water service will be, you know, more efficient. Mm-hmm. Instead of feeling like you have to do it all right now, you can say, okay, I've got a plan. I'm doing what I can and it's a good plan. Mm. <laughs> and, and giving yourself permission to not have to do it all at once and to make some choices knowing that, you know, industry is outstripping your personal household energy consumption by a bazillion. So you don't have to absolutely, you know, whip yourself over over your personal choices. But it is good to make as many personal choices as you can while you can. Mm, Yes. One of the things that I've been very interested in that comes out of the climate emergency movement is this idea of people deciding as individuals and you reach this place through facing the reality, the truth of climate change, feeling the absolute horror of what that actually feels like and then being galvanised into doing something to protect your future, everybody's future is for people to move into emergency mode, individually move into emergency mode, and what that looks like could be anything. But that's what Greta has done. Greta moved into emergency mode, and she's been supported in that by you know having a great profile now. But that's a really interesting shift that people are taking as well. My partner and I have got this plan that we were going to talk about at the upcoming Localising Lianganook conference to talk about how people around here could move into climate emergency mode and what does that look like and you know can you do that for a few hours a week or can you do that for many hours a week and and what does it actually take for you to change I also just wanted to come back to something that uh, Kerry you were talking about when you're working with people around the different levels in which people can be engaged because as you were talking I was thinking about this other work that we'd done with parents around raising their children to thrive in a climate-altered world. And we've looked at these four different skills and capacities that parents can be helping their children to learn that will equip them for living in a world that's going to be utterly different to the world in which we grew up. And and it starts off with the individual level skills. So what are the individual skills that a person needs to have? You know, things like flexibility and empathy and, you know, being kind and those sorts of things. And then we look at their interpersonal skills. So the things that we can teach children in terms of how they interact 
you know, one-on-one with other people. So being able to share, being able to be cooperative, being able to problem-solve together with other people, to be able to, you know, resolve conflict. These are all essential skills that we need for, you know, a more constrained uh, future. And then the third one is community-level skills. So teaching children how to be engaged in their community, how to be a, um, you know, how to look out for your neighbours, join community groups, participate in things that are happening in your community. So that starts to get into those group things that you can do. And, of course, we're doing all of this with the, the, you know, sustainability sort of activities in mind. But, of course, all of these skills are things that parents like to and know are important to teach their children anyway. And then the fourth level is the important of raising children to have um, civic engagement skills and that's that's that very thing you're talking about when you said not everybody feels like they can ring a politician but you know these fellas in Molden they were civically engaged by ringing a radio station and having anybody any duffer can do that you know Um, yes and so civic engagement skills are things like writing yeah, writing to your politicians, going and talking to your politician, joining r- rallies and uh, and things like that. That those are civic engagement skills, and all those four sets of skills—the interpersonal, uh, the individual, interpersonal, community, and civic ones—are really important for us to be able to live responsibly in a climate altered world. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We're running out of time, but I thought I would mention that there is a woman called Sophia sitting at the Castlemaine Farmers Market every second Wednesday afternoon who is sitting there with a table set up and so that you can write letters and postcards right, yeah. to your local pollies or your state or your federal ones if you want to. So wow. if you want a bit of encouragement or someone to help you write a letter or show you how you can just head down to the Castlemaine Farmers Market that's no. so fantastic yeah, that's great, about her inviting us making it easier for us to be civically yep, engaged we exactly. have to be civically engaged we can't solve climate change without yeah. being civically engaged yeah. yeah and it's her creating a community to do that yeah as great well. and you can go and pick up your veggies exactly. at the community market <laughs> all right well thanks so much for joining me Susie Burke and Carolee Jennings it's been great thanks for having us Ellie thank you no very worries. much Salt of the earth people, grassroots change, salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics, know someone amazing we should talk to, have a recycling tip, a green product review, or have a song recommendation. Again, email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or MASC. 
We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. Please be aware that if you do email us, we may or may not read your email on the show and may identify you by first name. If you do not want this, please say so in your email.